And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. It's also a city after the American Civil War where a lot of folks vanished. They came here since there were no... Okay, sorry about that. I had to stop and deal with an issue. At the end of the Civil War, a lot of families from the defeated South headed west. Uh, Their lives been uprooted. In many cases, their homes destroyed. When they got to El Paso, it was very easy to change their identity because basically people knew you by how you introduced yourself. No driver's license, no passports, no nothing. And from here, they either went further west into Mexico. Uh, there was a Confederate uh, town in Brazil. Uh, a lot of very prominent Confederate families went there. And they still raised the Confederate flag every morning up until I was told the 1960s. So, you know, as far as the world knew, a lot of people vanished in El Paso. And of course, if they died here, they were buried under the, the assumed name they had taken on. Yeah, I mean, it would take a major DNA effort to figure out who a lot of the folks in the very cemeteries around here actually are. And even then, they could only determine what families they were from. Well, that having been said, this is March 10th, 69th day of the year. 296 days remain till the year's over with. <coughs> and for those who live for holidays, this is National Ranch Day. Uh, now, you might think that refers to ranches where cattle and horses run, but actually it refers to ranch dressing, which shows you the mentality of those that come up with these um, holidays. National Pack Your Lunch Day. National Middle Name Pride Day, National Mario Day, National Skirt Day, I can get behind that one, and a National Day of uh, Awesomeness, National Blueberry Popover Day, International Wig Day, Lord help us who comes up with these things, International Bagpipe Day, School Breakfast Week, and we're now into the weeks and the various months that we've talked about in in every show. Now, in 241 B.C., the first Punic War battle of Agates, uh, the Romans sink the Carthaginian fleet, bringing the first Punic War to an end. Uh, the Carthaginians were quite the naval power, and the Romans put an end to them. In 298, Roman Emperor Maximian uh, concludes his campaign in North Africa and makes a triumphal return to, uh, or entry into Carthage. 947, the later Han is founded by Lu Zuyan, declares himself emperor. Hey, need a job? Declare yourself emperor. 
Emperor Norton did that here in North America. He ruled from San Francisco. And the fascinating thing is the San Franciscans supported him. He didn't pay for a meal his entire life. 1535, Spaniard Fray Tomas Berlanga, the fourth bishop of Panama, discovers the Galapagos Islands by chance on his way to Peru. 1607, the first defeats the combined armies of Yongob and Abuna uh, Petros II at the Battle of Gaul in Gojam, making him emperor of Ethiopia. Uh, 1629, Charles I dissolves the Parliament of England, beginning the 11-year period known as the Personal Rule. He pulled a Biden. He wanted to rule by decree. 1661, French son King Louis XIV begins his personal rule of France after the death of his premier, the Cardinal Mazarin. 1735, an agreement between Nader Shah and Russia's son near Ganja, Azerbaijan, with the Russian troops that withdrawn from occupied territories. 1762, French Huguenot Jean Calais, uh, who had been wrongly convicted of killing his son, dies after being tortured by authorities. And Voltaire, as I said yesterday, began a campaign of religious tolerance and legal reform. 1814, Emperor uh, Jean Calais' son, in all likelihood, committed suicide. 1814, Emperor Napoleon I is defeated at the Battle of Leon in France. 1830, the Royal Netherlands East Indies Army is created. 1831, the French Foreign Legion is created by Louis Philippe, King of France, from his foreign regiments of the Kingdom of France. And in 1848, on this date, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was ratified by the U.S. Senate, ending the Mexican-American War. 1861, El Haj. Umar Tal seizes the city of Segu, destroying the Bamana Empire of Mali. 1876, the first successful test of a telephone is made by Alexander Graham Bell. He got a busy signal. Uh, 1891, Alman Stoger patents the Stoger switch, a device that, lets, uh, that led to the automation of telephone circuit switching. Uh, 1906, the Courrier's mine disaster. Europe's worst ever kills 1,099 miners in northern France. 1909, by signing the Anglo-Siamese Treaty of 1909, Thailand relinqu relinquishes its sovereignty over the Malay states of Kedah, Kelantan, Perli, and Terlingango, which became the British protectorates. 1922, Mahatma Gandhi is arrested in India, tried for sedition, and sentenced to six years in prison. Only be released after nearly two years for an appendicitis operation. 1933, the Long Beach earthquake affects the greater Los Angeles area, leaving about 108 people dead. 1844, the Greek Civil War. Political Committee of National Liberations established in Greece by the National Liberation Front. They always have these high-sounding names. That literally means we got a bunch of folks together and we're going to come take over the government. The people they're allegedly are liberating usually have no idea what's going on. 
1945, the U.S. Army Air Force firebombs Tokyo, resulting in conflagration, kills more than 100,000 people, mostly civilians. 1949, Mildred Gillars, also known as Axis Sally, is convicted of treason. Tokyo ah. Rosen and Axis Sally both were uh, Americans who got, uh, or at least American citizens, who got stranded when the war broke out. And it was, uh, they needed a job, any job, in order to eat. 1952, Fulgencio Batista leads a successful coup in Cuba. Uh, he was the big kahuna until uh, Castro led another coup. 1959, Tibetan uprising. Fearing an abduction attempt by China, thousands of Tibetans surround the Dalai Lama's palace to present, prevent his removal. 1966, military prime minister of South Vietnam, Nguyen Cao Ki, Sachs rival General Nguyen Khan Thi, precipitating a large-scale civil-military dissension in parts of the nation. 1969, in Memphis, Tennessee, James Earl Ray pleads guilty to assassinating Martin Luther King Jr., later unsuccessfully attempted to recant. Interestingly enough, James Earl Ray, who'd always been a, a petty criminal, after the shooting of King, managed to get phony papers and enough money to travel. Um, nobody ever explained where the support came from. And also, after he shot Ray, uh, voices came over the police band radio and sent them the police in the wrong direction, uh, enabling uh, Ray to escape. I'm doing a book on that. 1970, Vietnam War. Captain Ernest Medina is charged by the U.S. military with the Malay crime war crimes. Medina didn't know Jack, the lieutenant in charge, who I got to know in Columbus. Uh, he married a, um, the daughter of a jeweler and sold jewelry for the rest of his life. Um, the lieutenant in charge basically lost control of his unit, is what happened. But somebody had to be the scapegoat. 1975, Vietnam War, Ho Chi Minh Campaign. North Vietnamese troops attack Ban Mi Thaut in the south on their way to capturing Saigon in the final push for victory over South Vietnam. All the blood and tears and money spent propping up that country and the politicians handed it right back to the communists. 1977, astronomers discover the rings of Uranus. Uh, 1989, Air Ontario Flight 1363, a Fokker F-28 Fellowship, crashes at Dryden in a regional airport in Dryden, Ontario, Canada. 24 people died. 1990 in Haiti, Prosper Avril was ousted 18 months after seizing power in a coup. This just shows to, to go you, you can't trust anybody. 2000, the dot-com bubble peaks with the NASDAQ Composite Stock Market Index reaching 5,048.62. Uh, 2006, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter arrives at Mars. Did you see the photographs of a uh, what appears to be an aircraft crashed on the surface of Mars? NASA, as you might guess, has had nothing to say about it. 2017, the impeachment of President Park Geun-hye of South Korea in response to a major political scandal is unanimously upheld by the country's constitutional court, ending her presidency. 2019, Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302, a Boeing 737 MAX, crashed. 
crashes leading to all 737 MAX aircraft being grounded worldwide. You know, it's uh, interesting when you look at all the um, coups and wars and what have you. It usually boils down to what began as a criminal gang becomes a movement and it gets press and builds up enough support to overthrow the existing order. But at the end of the day, what have you got? You got another bunch of criminals running the country, looting the treasury, getting all that American foreign aid. Well, we've been talking about uh, UFOs and uh, the so-called real war of the world. Well, we were talking uh, about a uh, Northrop P-61 Blackwood on night fighter, which was uh, the first American aircraft specifically designed to use uh, a tracking system uh, as good as anything on the ground. And they wound up in a, a dogfight with a UFO. Uh, they were based in the 68th Squadron in Japan. It happened on the night of October 15, 1948. Blackwood closed on an unidentified contact. It was traveling about 220 miles an hour, 2,300 feet over the city of Fukuoka. The visibility was unlimited. It was a clear movement night. About 11.05 p.m., the object accelerated from 220 to 1,200 almost immediately, which is almost three times faster than the 366 uh, miles per hour uh, Black Widow. And it did it, it at the same time, it did an impossibly, uh, an impossible uh, movement. It executed a split-S maneuver in a 180-degree turn that took it directly beneath the Black Widow. Now, even assuming one of our aircraft would have done that, it would have killed the pilot. The G-forces would have been unbelievable. And then the object virtually jumped nine miles away where it held a stationary position. When the fighter-bomber finally caught up with it, the craft literally shot up another nine miles ahead and waited for the Black Widow to catch up with it. Three times that same scenario took place, as if the unidentified craft was uh, playing a game with them, and then apparently bored with this um, interesting amusement. It eventually rose at terrific speeds to vanish off their radar screen within literally seconds. Again, something impossible for a, a, a terrestrial aircraft to do. Now, you would think something like this alone would have uh, our government announcing that there's something out there we don't know about. But, of course, it was all classified. <clears throat> and in a similar <coughs> excuse me, demonstration of uh, what you might call alien whimsy, 
took place March 17, 1949, over the Colleen base of Camp Hood, Texas. Located halfway between Austin and Waco. And it was here Air Force authorities, under a gathering storm of political pressure, to either definitively disclose or debunk the extraterrestrial um, call celebre, instructed Captain Horace McCulloch to replicate a typical UFO sighting with flares, which observers sometimes uh, compared with off-world craft. They were going, I think, um, staged the event. If he could put on a convincing show of military power techniques, the persistent and troublesome uh, controversy might be ended. They could just explain away every sighting as a flare. I mean, people had gotten tired of the weather balloon excuse. An assistant G2 of the 2nd Armored Division. Uh, McCulloch was skilled in deception, no question about it. I've known a lot of people in G2 sections of various battalions and regiments and what have you. And they're some of the slickest folks, almost as uh, good at lying as roofers are in El Paso. And he was confident test he designed would be sufficiently persuasive for staging repeated demonstrations on behalf of America's public information services. Knowing how gullible the uh, news media uh, is and was, he was pretty sure if he could pull it off, that would put an end to a major problem for the military. The national press, newsreels, and television was expected to offer these fiery displays as proof that Americans were mistaking common signal rockets for flying saucers. So at 7.52 that evening, as the captain and his squad were finalizing the first group of standard ordnance flares for test firing, he and his men saw an unusual aerial phenomena descending from the night sky in the form of large green, red, and white flare-like objects flying in generally straight lines. The things were seen in seven separate, seven separate sightings by trained artillery observers in different locations. Now that the flare-like UFO stole McCulloch's thunder implies that their alien operators had telepathically learned of his test in advance, or they have agents among us. And this preempted him um, from, demonstra- from proving his point, and it showed they had something of a sense of humor. UFOs returned to Colleen later that same month on the 31st. During the early morning hours, telephone communications went down after a reddish-white uh, spheroid appeared in uh, over Camp Hood's uh, nuclear materials depot. Fastest object of its kind recorded to date was clocked by Professor Charles Moore in the company of his scientific colleagues, U.S. Navy Commander R.R. R. McLaughlin and J. Gordon uh, Vaith, General Supervisor of the Office of Naval Research at uh, White Sands Proving Grounds. On April 24th, at 10.20 in the morning, they had just released a small weather balloon when Moore noticed something resembling a tiny white dot hovering high above it at about 5.6 miles altitude. He looked through a ML-47 theodolite surveying instrument with a rotating 25-power telescope for measuring horizontal and vertical angles while taking uh, elevation and azimuth readings. Focusing in on that object floating over the, the Mexico uh, desert, he saw a flat silver object about 40 feet in diameter and about 100 feet long. After 
minute or so of observation, this oval object dropped uh, without a sound in front of a mountain range. We just as quickly swung upward into the bright sky and out of sight. Its speed, recorded by the the equipment that uh, the scientists were using, uh, was 7 miles per second, or about 25,200 miles per hour, which is far beyond the capability of even any craft we have today. Bizarre sighting was made by U.S. Army personnel at Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas, during the late morning of May 5th. At 11.40, two majors, a captain, and several hundred field artillerymen were in training at the Waco Number 4 Desert Practice Range with concentrated groups of 150-millimeter uh, howitzers. When an oblong white disc suddenly swooped down from the sky and dove directly into their field of fire. It went through intense hail of burning shells for 30 to 50 seconds before emerging unscathed to fly at phenomenal speed in the company of another disc that joined it as soon as it left the... Uh, the barrage. Like the Blackwood fighter bombers encounter the uh, previous October, the aliens apparently wanted to impress the Army with their technological superiority. One of them, nevertheless, fled from a North American F-82 twin Mustang, the last piston-driven fighter ordered into production by the Air Force. The plane had been dispatched on the afternoon of May 21st from uh, Moses Lake Army uh, Air Force Base in uh, Washington State to intercept a silver disc visually sighted by crew and personnel from the Hanford Radar Station and confirmed on radar. Hovering in restricted airspace over the Hanford Atomic Plant at an altitude of 17,000 to 20,000 feet. America's first nuclear factory was still under extraterrestrial surveillance. Now, even more harassed by off-world machines was Camp Hood, where uh, base commanders were determined to put a stop to the intruders. For three minutes after 6.05 p.m. on June 6, civilian observers tracked a hovering orange object about 30 to 70 feet in diameter, a mile above the ground, three miles south of the observation post. This alien spacecraft began slowly moving in a level flight and then exploded in a shower of particles. Although eyewitnesses were too far from the action to see what sort of weapon had been fired at the target, it, uh, its effectiveness was beyond doubt. And while the intruder had been so quickly and thoroughly destroyed by ground forces, it was uh, perplexingly contrasted with the death-defying gauntlet of detonating howitzer shells run with impunity by uh, alien deaths the month before. Ufologists speculated... Uh, you know, suspect an alien captain of the Camp Hood kill let his guard down by failing to lower the same kind of impenetrable shields the May 5th spacecraft apparently had at Fort Bliss. A prominent scientist at the time who sighted an off-world craft was Clyde Tombaugh, discoverer of the dwarf planet Pluto in 1930. Nineteen years later, six or eight rectangular blue-green lights swiftly uh, flew in a geometrically space formation over the backyard of Tumbo's house in Las Cruces, New Mexico, about 9.45. This happened on August 20th. He said, I've done thousands of hours of night sky watching, but never saw a sight as strange as this. Judging from his description of geometrically uh, space lights, they may not have been individual objects flying in a fixed pattern. They might have been fixtures to the underside of a single large craft. 
any case, glowing numbers of uh, sightings such as his were making Air Force officials increasingly nervous. Nor were alien spacecraft invariably the, the benign apparitions Tom Ball witnessed. On the night of January 22, 1950, U.S. Navy Lieutenant Ronald Smith was piloting a routine security flight near the Bering Sea at uh, Kodiak, Alaska. At about 4.40 in the morning, a blip on his radar scope traveled so fast it left a trail across the screen. He alerted the crew members who immediately uh, sighted the target uh, close, a uh, five-mile gap in 10 seconds at 1,800 miles per hour, and then executed a 180-degree turn aimed directly at the patrol plane. Smith considered this to be a highly threatening gesture and switched off his aircraft lights as a luminous object narrowly missed the head-on collision and then vanished into the night. Near misses such as this one contributed to an increasing uh, anxiety throughout the Air Force. In the mid-morning of March 8, 1950, America's most important military installation went on full alert, sirens screaming with radar operators confirming a contact as solid as it was unidentified on a determined heading for Ohio's right Patterson Air Force Base. F-51 interceptors were scrambled, including two from the Air National Guard. Not long after takeoff, their pilots made visual contact with the intruder, which they described as spherical, huge, and metallic. It chose not to engage him, though, and escaped into the clouds at high speed. Our planes had no hope of matching the speed of this intruder. But you can't argue that it wasn't intelligently controlled. And that's what upset the Air Force. Later that month, a gigantic B-36 became the target of harassment by a much smaller alien vehicle while flying uh, with the Texas National Air Station, excuse me, Naval Air Station in Dallas. The largest mass-produced piston-engine aircraft in aviation history with the longest wingspan of any combat warplane ever built, 230 feet, don't you know, Converse 131-ton peacemaker contrasted with a diminutive 40-foot-wide spacecraft that uh, repeatedly buzzed it shortly before noon on August 16th. Gunners defending the B-36 ordered to withhold fire. Even when this uh, silver disc came up threateningly under the belly of the behemoth before breaking off its uh, shadow boxing and flying away within two or three seconds. The monstrous peacemaker's confrontation with the unknown was the last of these cat-and-mouse uh, encounters between uh, fast-flying aliens and U.S. Air Force. Its commanders were then gearing up for their own terrestrial conflict. You know, the, the fascinating thing is that rather than face the fact that we're not alone, <coughs> military goes to great lengths to cover up everything. It's all classified. I had a sighting in South America in the jungle. And... Uh, We're supposed to attack a hill. And I was given the coordinates. Six-digit grid coordinates, don't you know? The problem is the people who gave me the coordinates gave me the coordinates for the wrong hill. So we were uh, running a live fire attack. 
and when we got there, there was supposed to be a uh, compound on top of the hill. Well, we saw the lights, and who the hell else is going to be out in the jungle at 2 o'clock in the morning but the people we were after? So we attacked. I think I had uh, 42 or 43 people in my unit. We opened up with everything we had and swept the clearing, making sure that none of our people got ahead of the the line and got the rear end shot off. And as we approached the edge of the clearing, the lighted compound flew off. Which, uh, needless to say, I wasn't aware that... Uh, we had the type of technology that would allow compounds to fly. But apparently, uh, somebody did. So, uh, I radioed back in to kind of apprise everybody of that. And they asked me, was uh, the compound uh, eradicated? And I said, well, it's gone. And they said, but was it eradicated? I said, it is gone. What does that mean, I was asked. I said, it flew off. Dead silence. <laughs> and then the commander got on and said, are you drinking? I said, nope. Ain't none down here to drink. And what happened? And I told him. He said, be in my office when you get back. So the next day, I go to his office, and he said, now tell me what happened. And I did. He said, uh, you're sure it flew off? I said, we fired approximately 2,500 live rounds at this thing. And it flew away. So he made a phone call. I don't, I, he was a, a big man. I'm 6'1". In those days, about 160 pounds. He dwarfed me. And he didn't carry on conversations as much as give instructions to everybody. But whoever he was talking to, he did a lot of yes sirs. And he hung up and he said, okay, you can go. And I said, what about this thing? He said, well, you didn't see anything. I said, I most certainly did. We shot it. How do I explain 2,500 expended live rounds? Uh, inventory miscount. I said, no, we shot it 2,500 rounds. Everything from 45 rounds from my sidearm, M16s, M60s. Hell, I probably had some people throwing rocks at it. He said, nope, you didn't see a thing. And I said, I most certainly did. He said, if you want to remain an officer, you did not see anything. Okie dokie. That was into that. Well, you know, sometimes reading uh, 
the foreign newspapers. Gives you interesting information. There was a staff report on the Korea Herald named Burke Jocelyn who said during the Korean War, both American and Korean uh, pilots had encounters of flying saucers. But we didn't hear about them here. Now, following a um, January 1987 interview, UFO researcher Richard Haynes checked U.S. Army records. It listed uh, a man named Francis Wall as a private first-class Korean War veteran assigned to the unit he described. He told a story to the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies in Chicago. It was absolutely unbelievable. The unit he was assigned to According to the records, belonged to the 25th Infantry Division, the 27th Regiment, 2nd Battalion, Easy Company, stationed in North Korea's Jirawan County, Kangwon Province, known as the Iron Triangle for the heavy artillery barrages it suffered. During the night of April 18, 1951, Wall and his comrades were in position on the slopes of a mountain overlooking a small village that had been recently abandoned prior to its bombardment by our uh, artillery. And as the shelling commenced, Wall was adamant. We suddenly noticed on our right-hand side what appeared to be a jack-o'-lantern come wafing down across the mountain. Now, at first, nobody thought anything about it. So we noticed this thing uh, continued on down to the village where uh, the artillery uh, airbursts were exploding. Had an orange glow in the beginning, and we noticed it was... Uh, so quick that it could uh, go into the center of an airburst by artillery and remain unharmed, which was absolutely unbelievable. The infantryman observed the, the performance of whatever this thing was for almost an hour. But then the object approached us, and it turned to blue-green brilliant light. It's hard to distinguish the size of it, no way to compare it to anything. The light was pulsating, and it approached us. And he said he asked for and got permission from Lieutenant Evans, their company commander at the time, to fire on the object, which he did with an M1 rifle with armor-piercing bullets. And he hit it. He was sure. It must have been metallic because you could hear the projectile when it slammed into it. Now, why would the bullet damage this craft if the artillery rounds didn't? Nobody had any idea unless the occupants of the jack-o'-lantern dropped their protective field around them or whatever may have been uh, keeping the uh, airburst away. But the object went wild, and the light was going on and off, and it went off completely once. It was moving erratically from side to side as though it might crash to the ground. And then a sound. And there hadn't been any sound prior to this, but a sound of like a diesel locomotion uh, revved up. And then we were attacked, he said. We were swept by some form of ray that was emitted in pulses and waves you could visually see when it was aimed directly at you. That's to say, like a searchlight sweeps around and you could see it coming at you and you felt a burning, tingling sensation all over your body as though something was penetrating you. So the company commander hauled everybody into the the bunkers and we didn't know what was going to happen. And Wall was adamant. Everybody was scared. There are underground dugouts where you have 
peepholes to look at it uh, to fire at the enemy. So Wall was in his bunker with another man, and they're peeping out at this thing and it hovered over him for a while, lit up the whole area with its lights, and then he saw it shoot off at a 45-degree angle. It was just gone. And it was as though that was the end of it, but three days later, the entire company of men had to be evacuated by ambulance. They had to cut roads in there and haul them out. They were ill and too weak to walk. They all had dysentery. And subsequently, when doctors did see them, they had an extremely high white blood cell count, which the doctors could not account for, no matter what they did. Wall and his compatriots decided not to report the incident to their superior officers because they'd lock us up and think we were crazy. And they might have gotten the same reception I got. You didn't see anything if you want to remain an officer. Well, as Wall's experience shows, UFO experiences during the Korean War differed from the World War II encounters in that the enigmatic uh, objects interacted with the military personnel on the ground as well as in the air over Asia and America. Late afternoon of September 19, 1950, about three months after President Truman ordered U.S. air and sea forces to defend the South Korean regime against communist invasion from the north, Police stations and newspaper offices across five counties in uh, southeast Missouri were deluged with telephone calls and telegrams reporting a translucent silver spear or an object having a bright gold center with lavender edges hovering over a popular bluff. It was a small city of about 15,000 residents. The nearest Air Force base was located outside Memphis, Tennessee, about 145 miles due south. It was notified and immediately dispatched a F-51 fighter flown by Lieutenant uh, Claude Haverty to investigate the sighting. And he soon made visual contact of his own. The object he reported was like a big silver marble that moved off at his approach to the town of Malden, 30 miles uh, to the southeast. And it proceeded at an altitude of about 60 to 80,000 feet over the New Madrid area at the Illinois border. Its behavior is reported as hovering stationary to moving at terrific rate of speed after it turned its lights on. That's according to uh, a reporter by the name of Bryce Baker. Object also made no sound and left no exhaust trail. Running low on fuel, Haverty broke off pursuit, but only after confirming that the metallic contact moving under its own power was not a weather balloon, as his superior officers uh, initially suspected and afterwards announced. See, the powers that be have no problem lying their asses off to... uh, maintain the charade that uh, you've mistaken a weather balloon for a UFO that just attacked you. They ordered his replacement, another F-51, into the area at once. By the time Lieutenant Donald Sofker arrived at New Madrid, the object was gradually descended to 40,000 feet, and he got a good long look at the spherical elliptical shape before it took off vertically at an astounding velocity vanishing almost instantly into the uh, bright, clear afternoon sky. Looking up after his disappearance, Sofker saw a small but definite number of white and green lights above him. They appeared to move in bursts of extremely high speed northward, according to a report in the southeast uh, Missourian. Less than 24 hours later, a passenger plane flying over Poplar Bluff toward Memphis was narrowly missed by a speeding object in the same airspace where Lieutenant Haverty and Sofker had... Uh, encountered the silvery spear the previous afternoon. American Airlines Captain Garment said I was flying at 18,000 feet. 
and it looked as though it just came right across our nose. I never saw such a brilliant flash of light before. It wasn't clear light. It seemed to be burning with an orange, yellow, and blue flame. It lit up the whole night sky. About that same time, at 1.35 a.m., a terrific explosion in the night sky was heard by many thousands of people on the ground across uh, southern Missouri and northeastern, northwestern Illinois into Kentucky and parts of Tennessee. Later that same morning at 10.19, a sp- uh, specimen of the latest uh, Air Force jet fighter slammed into a uh, hillside near Piedmont, Missouri, 40 miles northwest of Poplar Bluff. And although the F-89 was totally destroyed, the pilot, Lieutenant Logan McMillan, ejected in time and was able to walk to the nearest post office where he telephoned his superior officers uh, back at their Memphis area base. They restricted all public information about the crash in a terse press release explaining that uh, nobody was injured and no property was damaged, so uh, no harm, no foul. Northrop Scorpion was a... That's the F-89, don't you know? It was an all-weather interceptor, the first jet fighter designed as such. Well, interesting, the alien intelligence, perhaps, was also the first combat aircraft armed with air-to-air nuclear weapons, the unguided Genie rocket. When Air Force spokesman dismissed Popular Bluff's bits of Marble as a wayward weather balloon and determined Lieutenant Sofker's sighting of white and green lights at high altitude didn't merit comment, astronomers told... Uh, now, Captain Garman and tens of thousands of people over a four-state area experienced a falling meteor, and the crashed F-89 was given short shrift in the local press. Some things have to be kept from the people for their own good, don't you know? We can't handle the truth. But no officials could explain how all these events could have been centered in southeastern uh, Missouri within the same 18-hour period. The Northrop Scorpion appears to have been downed by either the big silver marble or its escorting white and green lights, probably as many of the accounts we've talked about indicate, through disabling the jet fighter's avionics. And this supposition was underscored by the craft's nuclear weapons capabilities, an apparent sore point with extraterrestrial uh, sensitivities. If this is the case, then it was the first such attack of the Korean conflict era. Keep in mind that many of the contactees in the 40s and early 50s uh, were told by the aliens we need to stop our research into nuclear weapons. It's bad for the planet. Now, the Korean War uh, wars uh, in the air with off-world vehicles was mostly characterized by near misses aggressively initiated by UFOs seemingly intent on uh, collision courses. First such confrontation took place during the evening of November 7, 1950, a little more than four months after hostilities began, not over Korea, but over Lakehurst, New Jersey, of all places. U.S. Navy Lieutenant Junior Grade Robert Haven was piloting a Douglas AD-4Q Sky Raider, ground attack bomber at 3,500 feet, when at 7.15 p.m. he noticed a steady white light to his right, about 500 feet higher and about five miles away, heading toward the southeast. And he's made a slight climbing turn to the left to go after the uh, object. It abruptly came around in a 180-degree sweep, diving directly at him from 4,000 feet. Too fast for Haven to even execute an evasive maneuver. Now, bracing for impact, he watched as the luminous uh, spear flashed over his cockpit canopy at 200 feet. 
uniquely for so close a pass at such high velocity, neither wash nor slipstream uh, trailed the object, which traveled at almost 900 miles an hour and then slowed to less than half that speed. Undaunted, Haven pulled the Sky Raider over to the tightest right turn it could make in order to pursue this unidentifiable craft. Suddenly climbed to 2,000, at 2,000 feet per minute, leaped back and came back yet again at the AD-4Q, which narrowly maneuvered out of harm's way. Three more times, Lieutenant Haven and his elderly opponent banked and charged, though his target is sigillously avoided drifting within firing range of the Sky Raiders for uh, 20-millimeter AN-M3 autocannons. During their wild skirmish, it seemed clear to him the the alien pilot was determined to collide and only disengaged at around 11,500 feet with the approach of uh, Air Force interceptors. In a matter of seconds, the object shot vertically to 25,000 feet where it vanished. Similar fireballed dove on and nearly struck a North American F-86D saber jet over Hungnan in uh, Hamyang, Namdo province, during the first such uh, tangle over North Korea in the afternoon of October 12, 1952. Shots had been fired the previous summer after radar at a secret USA Air Force installation detected an unidentifiable aircraft approaching from the northeast at uh, about Mach 1, 70 miles per hour faster than the world's fastest jet. But unlike this particular episode, this time the UFO instantly dropped its speed from 770 miles per hour to a mere 100 miles per hour as it neared the airfield. And uh, a pair of saber jets was scrambled. As the jets climbed to 40,000 feet, the intruder slipped from radar screens, maybe in an evasive descent. Tower operators ordered one of the pilots to maintain the altitude at 20,000 feet and the other dove to 5,000 feet. It was hoped that between the two of them, they might make visual contact with the target. And sure enough, the F-85 assigned to the low altitude began verging on a silver metallic object that looked like a donut with no hole in the middle. Gradually picked up speed, but the Saberjet continued to gain. Pilot's efforts to alert first his high-flying wingman, and then the base failed after his radio died. Pushing his aircraft to its performance limits, he was only 1,500 feet behind the speeding donut, uh, just within firing range of his six machine guns. And realizing he couldn't hold that uh, distance much longer, the pilot unloosed a stream of 50 caliber rounds at the intruder, which escaped vertically into the sky at an unbelievably hilarious speed. If you were out running 50 caliber rounds, you're moving, let me tell you. Back in the U.S., the next December the 4th, Glowing object rapidly ascended toward Air Force Lieutenant Robert Arnold's North American T-28 Trojan about 6,000 feet over Laredo, Texas. Caught sight of the bright bluish-white light at 8.46 p.m. and put the Trojan uh, trainer into a tight left turn to get a better look at it. And as he did this, the object left in seconds to 3,000 feet above him and dropped down to his altitude, flying eastward to a point in the evening sky where it paused though it had been nailed among the stars. Two seconds later, it suddenly flew at him head-on at high speed, wavering slightly at about 300 feet, as if determining what side to pass the aircraft on. Well, the mysterious light missed Arnold's left wing by no more than 150 feet in a blurred reddish-bluish haze somewhat shorter than the 33-foot length of his T-28. Fearing a renewed attack, 
He turned off the Trojan's running lights while spiraling down to 1,500 feet. The object came about and dove at him again, but after a few seconds, inexplicably broke off pursuit, pulled up, and climbed out of sight at 9.53. Arnold's uh, ordeal lasted a full seven minutes. And let me tell you, when you're involved in a, in a combat situation, seven minutes is an eternity. Hanford, Washington's much reconnoitered uh, nuclear power plant was within the focus of alien scrutiny on December 10th. Over the facility at about 7.15 p.m. between 26,000 and 27,000 feet hovered a large white spear with a reddish light between two apparent portholes. Airborne ARC-33 radar of a dispatched uh, Lockheed F-94 Starfire, our first day or night all-weather jet fighter, locked on the contact, which is visually confirmed by both crew members multiple times. Seemingly annoyed at such persistent scanning, the object abruptly rushed at the Starfire, which banked at the last moment to avoid a collision. All four craft proceeded on its way, disappearing about 7.30 p.m. It's interesting to note that more often than not, the aliens indulge in a game of chicken, as if they don't think anything can happen to them. It'll be interesting to see what would happen if there was a collision. Would it destroy both craft? Just ours? Also on December 10th, another near collision occurred near Hungnan, North Korea, when a U.S. Navy pilot's Grumman F-9F Panther jet was almost grazed by an orange fireball. Previous May 31st, before sunrise, another Starfire pilot himself initiated two separate head-on attacks against a round, brilliant, bluish-white light. Cited earlier by ground observers, in his own words, he descended in a port turn to intercept an unidentified object 6,000 feet below his position on a 90-degree turn course and an altitude of 8,000 feet. And as he did so, the light began to, a port climb to intercept his descending F-94, thereby silhouetting the Lockheed jet against the dawn light. Well, to extricate himself from this vulnerable position, a Starfire pilot hit his afterburners. And during the ensuing dogfight, neither opponent was able to get a stern of the other. After several more inconclusive passes, the off-world craft disengaged by increasing its speed, departing on a 45-degree heading, and vanishing. Clearly. Um, technologically. They outclass us by several generations. These North Korean-era confrontations were in marked contrast to the Foo Fighter encounters of World War II, which were mostly benign. There were some attacks, but mostly were benign. Something had changed. In the first half of the 20th century, most sightings included relatively small alien craft 100 feet or less in length or diameter. Very few were described as huge as Captain Mantell did, but that was to change as well. U.S. Marine Corps Navy aviator... Major Donald Kehoe told of an escort carrier, believed to be the USS Rendova, cruising under an overcast sky off the Korean coast in concert with 14 other warships. On an undisclosed night in early 1951, the vessel's combat information center picked up a bogey that began circling the entire task force under 20,000 feet. Arm was sounded and every man rushed to his post at uh, general quarters. Minutes later, Grumman F-9Fs were launched through pitch-black conditions in the 
lightless sky that uh, then were guided toward the intruder by radar operators. And they were especially perplexed by the Panther jet pilot's inability to find it after almost two hours' flight time because their scopes indicated the unidentified craft was larger than the aircraft carrier itself. Well, instruments were checked and rechecked, and they were functioning perfectly while the colossal target was tracked by radar operators on all 14 ships. It continued to leisurely and invisibly circle high overhead, lost a view in the impenetrable darkness, but um, neither an attack nor message to bring the enemy bombers was forthcoming. First, a wave of interceptors returned to the flight deck to be replaced in the night sky by another squadron, nearly seven hours after the alert had been given. Flying blind entirely by instruments, the lead pilot suddenly called over his radio, target joining uh, up on wingman. This gargantuan UFO had stopped circling the task force to suddenly swing around behind one of the jets. Close in for visual on target, the CIC operator commanded in uh, preparation for orders to commence firing with the Panthers' 420mm cannons. Just as the pilot began his turn, the object increased speed, left the plane behind. In less than 10 minutes, the radar scope showed it was 200 miles away. Now that's some kind of speed, let me tell you. Another typical but relevant encounter uh, occurred in uh, broad daylight far from Korea. During the early afternoon of March 29, 1952, two fiery disks appeared over the uranium mines in the Belgian Congo. After hovering at a low altitude for several minutes, the objects uh, zigzagged away toward the northeast. Among the witnesses on the ground was Commander Pierre, local police chief of the uh, air arm of the Belgian uh, armed forces who rushed to the nearby Elizabethville Airport. He took off in a new Dassault MD-450 Oregon fighter, ascended to 7,480 feet per minute. He made visual contact with one of the luminous vehicles, describing it as a bright spear that uh, seemed to be irregularly uh, reconfigured itself into plates and ovals and lines, and then back again, before both accelerated away into the sky. There's no question we're dealing with technology far beyond anything we have a remote uh, chance of re-engineering. The presence of these crafts over an important uh, source of uranium underscored the aliens' apparent interest in uh, human development of atomic weapons, including numerous UFO encounters over America's nuclear research and production plants, such as Washington State's uh, Hanford facility. June 29th, E.T. Skoyan, superintendent of Sequoia and Kings National Park in California, reported a thousand-foot-wide disc raced past the granite dome formation of Morro Rock to illuminate a nearby canyon with brilliant yellow light. Crafts was observed by other park authorities over three days and nights. At that time, Air Force fighters were stationed in California's uh, southern Sierra Nevada mountains to intercept the intruder with extreme prejudice, in other words, shoot the sucker down. They had no difficulty visually confirming the immense vehicle flying over a few hundred miles per hour at low altitude, an apparently easy target. The F-51s dove on it but were afforded no opportunity to fire their 50 caliber machine guns because the disc instantaneously increased speed far beyond the performance envelope of any earthbound uh, airplane, playfully outmaneuvering its piston-driven pursuers in a kind of mock dogfight, and then left them far behind as it streaked away into the sky. Clearly... We were outclassed, but the 
inexcusable refusal of our own government to tell us what we're dealing with is something that um, could well come back to bite us. On that note, we come to the end of today's show. We've run out of time. We'll be back tomorrow. And once again, no, I'm sorry, this is Friday. We'll be back on uh, Monday. And once again, you've been listening to Ken Hudnall on the Ken Hudnall Show. Until then, have a truly great weekend.